Lord. So we do want to welcome our live stream audience. I know um, Andrea and John said they couldn't be here last week, but they were able to watch at home. So I listen to a lot of podcasts about church leadership and the changes. They call it the digital disruption. And churches moving from just the one hour on Sunday. So these options where you can watch at home and participate at home, it's a really good thing because especially the younger ones, that's, that's what they do. They live on YouTube. So uh, it's great that we can watch on YouTube and Facebook. And so we want to welcome our live stream audience. And, and I just want to say it's, it's really just an honor for me to teach. And I just want to thank Pastor Tom for letting me teach this, my third Bible study. And um, just to grow, I mean, you've seen me like a plant on the stage growing, and I'm thankful for that opportunity because I'm learning that I was made for this. I mean, I was made for this, and so it's just so exciting. So, God, we do just welcome you. God, I thank you that you can use weak, imperfect vessels to share your word. And and Jesus, tonight, I want to share with these people the Jesus I know. Just like John wrote, that they had seen you, and they had heard you, and they shared the Jesus. He shared the Jesus he knew. And I've come to know you in your word, and, and I don't claim to know you perfectly, but I want to share the Jesus I've come to know, because the more we know you, the more we love you. And if we love you, we'll never leave you. So equip me, anoint me, so I can just impart the truth of Jesus to these people in Jesus' name. Amen. So does everyone have a handout? Hoping that I um, have enough. Mike is helping with those. So last week, just to review, so our theme of the book of John is Jesus is the Christ, believe and live. And uh, Pastor Tom and I are both hearing from Holy Spirit because the verse that I found for this week came from 1 John, 1 John 5, 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so that's what we've been talking about, Jesus and life. And last week was a really encouraging message about how Jesus was like us. He, he was God in the flesh. The Word became flesh. He had skin and bones and emotions and pain and everything we experience. And we looked at how he was our high priest. I called it the Hebrews road, Hebrews 2, 4, 5, and, and then 7. How he understands our weaknesses because he was made like us. And then we looked at Isaiah 53, that prophetic um, picture of the suffering servant. He was despised and rejected. We're going to look at some of that tonight. And then we looked at that word, Jesus was troubled, <laughs> which that's in the NAS, but it means he was agitated at times. When Lazarus was dead and in the tomb and then in the Garden of Gethsemane, we looked at those different words that described how Jesus felt in those moments because everything that we experience, he's experienced too, but without sin, but without sin. So I always like to give a little Bible study nugget, and the one I want to share with you tonight is this, is many people feel like they just don't have time to study the Bible. And what it really takes is just a routine. It takes some self-discipline, and I'm going to talk tonight about when I worked in the nuclear plant, and my shift started at 5.30 in the morning, and nuclear plants are in the boonies. It took me 30 minutes to get there from Raleigh takes me an hour to get ready, so that means I had to start getting ready at 4, at 3.30 in the morning, 
I was sitting with my cereal in the Word. And I don't want to share that to, um, you know, kudos to me, but I want to inspire you that what it takes is a routine. And the, the way that I'm able to be in the Word, not every day. I do I manage about five days a week except in the springtime when then I'm with Jesus in my garden. But it just takes a routine. So if you can manage five minutes in the morning and just start that routine, it's not about quantity. It's just about a desire to be in the Word. It's not about 30 minutes. Some of you don't have 30 minutes, but it's just, it's just getting into that routine, even if it's just sitting with your phone, as my husband does, while he eats his yogurt, sitting with the Word. So I just want to encourage you, that's how it starts. It just starts with a simple routine, one change and being consistent. So I want to inspire you that, yes, you can do it. And, and it's really, I think it comes down to self-control. And I'm not one to talk because there are a lot of areas where I don't have it, don't have self-discipline. But that's one area God has given me the grace. And during the parenting years, it was harder. It's a lot easier now. So we're going to look at who Jesus was from the viewpoint of John tonight. And remember, John was Jesus' intimate friend. You know, there were the crowds, and then there were the 12 disciples, and then there were the three, Peter, James, and John, and then there was John. So John saw sides of Jesus and, and knew what he was thinking. And so John gives us a picture of Jesus that you don't really get through the other Gospels, even though I'm going to have a lot of cross-references. And I will say that this lesson, it, it was hard to group the different emotions and feelings and things. So it's going to feel like there are some abrupt changes because there are. <laughs> I mean, I might jump from anger to grief, but it was kind of hard and um and it's not a line-by-line study of John, but as I read something that showed the humanity of Jesus, that was a point. And so you're going to see that, and there's a lot of things on your handout. So let's start first with Jesus knows anger. And if you drove here in 5 o'clock traffic, you can probably <laughs> relate to that already. But this is in um, John chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And the cross-reference, I think the next verse says, zeal for his house, my father's house, has consumed me. And so Jesus knows anger. Knows anger. And, and here we get to see, you know, when you're passionate about something and when something's not just, you get angry. And the temple was a place for worship not a place of business. And so we share this emotion. And tonight, I'm going to encourage you that Jesus knows the things that we feel, but I'm also going to give you his example and what the Word says. So there might be a little more stepping on toes than there was last week, but we want grace and we want the truth, right? Jesus was full of grace and truth. The grace is Jesus knows what it feels like to be angry and indignant, but we're also going to look at truth. And the truth is what Scripture tells us in Ephesians 4.26. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so a lot of us are probably thinking, how can I be angry 
and not sin. And I wish the Bible had elaborated, you know, given us five more verses. This is, you do this, this, and this, and this, and this. But remember to Jesus, and a lot of times when we're angry, it's at people. And to Jesus, other people mattered. Remember that from last week? Other people mattered more than himself. So if you're driving down College Road and somebody cuts you off, we want to shout out, idiot. But to Jesus, he probably would have said, God, protect them because they're driving recklessly. Other people mattered more. So the example that I thought of for this is politics. And I'm on social media. Um, I travel and I speak. And so I'm out there. I don't post about politics. I just stay out of that fray. But I will say that I have family and friends that are on my Facebook feed that are liberal, and I am a conservative. That's just, it's who I am. I'm a conservative. And one thing that has really hurt me is being stereotyped as a conservative. And my family and friends would post things that, well, they look kind of like this. Come on, it's common sense. Only a white conservative can be a racist. So conservatives are stereotyped, just like liberals are stereotyped. My experience is on the conservative end. But all of us have been grouped together and said, if you're this, then you're this. And we've been labeled, you know, as a conservative. My friends and family have said I'm racist and I'm sexist and I'm, that word I can't say, misogynistic. We're Nazis. And if I'm a woman, I'm just, I can't think for myself. I'm just listening to what my husband tells me to do. That's what they've said. And, you know, I'm on this side of the fence. I know that conservatives are just as guilty as stereotyping people on the other side of the spectrum. So the point is not that one is right or wrong. I'm just telling you my experience of being hurt through that. And this is what I think some application could be, is you can be outraged at a situation and not tear down and vilify the people that are involved. You can be outraged at the situation, at the injustice, this is wrong, but don't tear down the people that are involved. And we want to call out truth, but we don't want to say, well, since you all showed up to Bible study on Wednesday night, then you're all this, 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 and this, and this. So I just want to encourage you to be careful because it's hurtful. And I saw just a friend that that went on on his Facebook page, and, and he was hurt, so it hurts people. We can be angry and indignant, but not sin. And it's sin to tear down people, I believe. It's, I believe it's, it's sin. Now, we can speak truth, but you better make sure you know it's true. You better make sure. I don't, my husband knows I didn't vote the way he told, him, told me to, because he didn't tell me to, right? <laughs> we had a lot of talks. So anyway, Let's move on before I get myself in deep, deep trouble. So I want to talk about grief. So this is Brian's mother, Jane. She's the beautiful redhead standing next to Brian. And um, about four years ago, she died of a stroke. And we, she was gardening one minute, and the next minute she was with Jesus. And it was a shock. And there was, she was in the hospital. We weren't sure how it was going to go. And Arlene remembers that morning because I was, it was early in the morning when I found out, and I was in shock. Like, I couldn't get dressed. I couldn't eat. I couldn't fix my coffee. I was just stuck on the couch. 
and I called Arlene and said, help. And I believe she said, you know, who can I call? And I gave her some phone numbers, and she called people, and they came to my house, and my neighbor came over and poured my cereal. And so I was in a stage of grief, which is shock. And we all experience grief, whether it's the loss of a person or a relationship or an opportunity. And I love, as I studied, um, as, I, as I studied Jesus and thinking about John the Baptist, and you've probably heard me say this before, but when John the Baptist died, Jesus grieved. And we're going to see that. It's in Scripture. And you would think, well, that was just a cousin, but he was the only one who truly knew who truly heard God say, this is my son. He was his chief supporter, and he died a violent death supporting Jesus. I mean, imagine your chief supporter dying for you, and Jesus grieved. So how did Jesus respond? And that's in Matthew 14, 13. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And we're going to look more at some of those words, but Jesus needed some space. He needed to process what had happened. He needed to grieve. And the, the seven emotional stages of grief are described as shock, denial, bargaining, guilt, anger, depression, and then finally acceptance. So I want to encourage you that if you're grieving, Jesus knows what that is like. And I also want to encourage you that he was a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief, so he knows what that feels like. So I think for application, Jesus is okay if you're grieving, and there are going to be people that will say, you should be over that by now, but I don't believe Jesus would say that, because grief can change you, and grief takes time, and Everybody processes it differently. So just, I want to encourage you to give people in your life that are grieving time to grieve. And, and they might be changed. They might be a different person. But have grace with them and know that Jesus understands. So the next one, I called it Jesus was cautious. And this is on your handout, John 2, 24 to 25. It says, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he didn't need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in a man. So the NIV commentary says Jesus could read people more accurately than a doctor can read physical symptoms in diagnosing an illness. Jesus could read people, and in one way that gives me hope, because Jesus knows what's in a man. I mean, he knows. He knows the sin that can dwell in our hearts. But how did Jesus respond? Jesus had safe boundaries because he knew what was in man. It says he didn't entrust himself to them. That was very early in his ministry. He knew what people were like. So boundaries are not always from fear. Sometimes they can be fear-based if you, you know, build a wall and say never, never, never. But boundaries aren't from fear. They're often from wisdom. Jesus wasn't fearful. He was wise. He knew that he needed to protect himself. And 
I like to refer to this book by Danny Silk called Keep Your Love On, and he talks about boundaries in this book. And he talks about, um, he says, to see this pattern, we look at Jesus and see how he prioritized certain relationships over others. He didn't offer the same level of access and intimacy to everyone around him. His first allegiance was to the Father, and then to the Twelve, and then to the Three. They were his inner circle. And then to John, his closest friend. And it says you're called to love all people, but that doesn't mean all people have access to your core. So we see Jesus had some boundaries. He had the people that were way out there. He loved everyone, but I think only John knew the true feelings of his heart. Now, for me, I'm a bit different because when Miss Arlene, my mentor, had me get alone with God and write down what am I called to do, number one is love God. Number two was be transparent. And that is not a gift that I asked for. But if you've heard me teach before, you've, you've heard me share that Lisa don't have it all together. <laughs> and God has given me a grace and a strength to be able to stand up here and like last week, I said I'm a want, I was a wanton woman, and that didn't even phase me to say that because God has given me a grace to be transparent and say what I was like and even what I'm still like now, where I still struggle. So that is something that's a little different. You'll see certain people that have that grace, but others are, most of us are going to be a lot more reserved. So Jesus models safe boundaries. So application, there are going to be times you're going to have to have boundaries and minimize your time around people that drain you or hurt you. And that doesn't mean you don't love them, but it means there, there are seasons where it might not be safe to, I mean, Danny Silk talks about how to build relationship back. You, you slowly are vulnerable a little bit at a time. And, um, and I've walked that out with a family member in, in its good wisdom. So Jesus had boundaries. Now, a lot of times I'll stand up here and I'll say something, and Pastor Tom can make some faces. He'll be like, it's like this, really? And I think, oh, Lord, I have just blasphemed the Holy Spirit and taught an untruth. And, and, and it, so I, when I'm talking about this next part, I'm just not going to look at him. <laughs> but this is something that Lisa has considered. It should be on your handout with a question mark. Perhaps Jesus was a little bit of an introvert. So I'm going to show you these scriptures, but you can make your own decision. I'm not, I'm not saying this is the canon. It's not the gospel truth. It's what, what I see in scripture. Now, an introvert by Merriam-Webster, they're defined as one whose personality is, is characterized by introversion, especially a reserved or shy person who enjoys spending time alone. Now, um, so introverts are often characterized by shyness, but I personally am an introvert, and if you know me, I'm not really shy. I will run my mouth to a pole if it'll stand still long enough. I talk, and I talk, and the cashiers probably see me coming and say, oh, no, here she comes. I talk. So I'm not shy, but I do need a lot of time alone. Right, honey? I need a lot of time alone. 
and my, uh, I have my, my church Bible mentor, Arlene, and then I have a speaking mentor who's helping me as I travel and speak, and her name is Susan Ely. And I love this definition of an introvert. She says an introvert needs massive amounts of time alone, or alone time, massive amounts of alone time in order to have quality time with others. And she defines herself as an introvert, and that's, that's how she describes it. And I love that because that's me. And I, I love to be with people, but I'm like a phone. You know, as it goes by, you know, hour by hour, the charge slowly runs down, and after a while, I get on empty. And you can do a lot of research about introverts online, but on your handout, here's just one little quote. An introvert's desire for solitude is more than just a preference. It is crucial to our health and happiness. We need time alone to restore ourselves. So I get up very early in the morning. Like this morning, um, I was up before 5 o'clock because I learned when I had children, if I wanted time alone, I had to get up early. If you've ever seen my garden, that was because Lisa needed time alone. And Brian would watch the kids on Saturday morning for Lisa to garden because she needed time alone. And so let's look at Jesus. We're going to look at some scriptures. We're going to do some word studies. Did he need time alone? And especially time alone with God? Because for me, a lot of times that time alone in the garden, that's with God. (laughs) It's not with people, but it's with God and it restores me. So first we're going to look at Luke 5, 15 through 16. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus would, I love this word, often, often slip away to the wilderness and pray. So in the Greek, this word slip away It's a compound word, but the root word, and I thought this was so fascinating, it means to leave space, to leave space, which can be filled by something else, to make room, to give place, to have room or space for receiving or holding something. And I think about my my refrigerator. When I buy a turkey, come Thanksgiving, I'm going to have to clear some stuff out to make room to put that turkey in there. And sometimes we have to do that. We have to clear some things off our calendar to make space for God to speak to us, to lead us, to fill us up. So that word means to make space, and we're going to see it again. And there were needy people coming to him, but also if you think about Jesus, even those 12 disciples, they were still human. And they probably had needs. Hey, Jesus, my cousin is sick. Can we go that way? And pray for them. You know, hey, Jesus, my toe hurts. Can you pray for me? Hey, Jesus, what do I do in this relationship? So I think even those disciples drew from Jesus' social reserve, you know, his his tank. Sometimes I say I'm socialed out. And I think Jesus ministering to the crowds, but even with the 12. Because if you know, even sometimes with your closest friends, when, when one of them is sick, and one of them, their parent dies, and one is having marriage relationships, and when they all are leaning on you, which we're supposed to do, but when you're hardly holding it together, it's hard. It's hard, and sometimes it's like those things come in groups, and you're like, oh, this is hard, and sometimes you have to pull back just a little 
just to gather yourself so you can minister. Cross-reference, Luke 9, 10. It says, when the apostles returned, they gave an account of him to all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew. He made space by himself to a city called Bethsaida. So some of us need to withdraw more than others. And I heard one podcast where they talked about this woman said she had a small plate. And for me, sometimes I feel like I have that small plate for doing social things. Because if we have a conference and I'm here Friday night and I'm here Saturday morning and I'm here Saturday night, on Sunday I'm sitting in my chair. I ain't talking to nobody. I'm over there going, "Uh." I'm a bit comatose because I haven't had that time to be restored. So we have to respect that sometimes people need to slip away. Sometimes people need to recharge more than others. And, And don't judge them. Love them. Because they're just trying to hold it together and be healthy. They, they have to recharge so they can spend quality time. I have to recharge so that I can minister. And especially when I travel, I, need, I always plan a good day at home because I know that, that I'm going to need that. Okay, the next scripture, Matthew 14, 13. And this is the one we already looked at. When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew to a secluded place by himself. And look, when the people heard of it, they followed him. That's like if you, if you have a toddler and you go in the bathroom and you shut the door, they're going to come knocking on the door. <laughs> like you can't even potty by yourself. The people still followed him. And this word, it's, it's anachoreo. It's that same root word, choreo, which means to make space. He withdrew. I'm leading a a small group. I recently started it, and I've told the ladies this is an introvert-friendly small group. Sometimes when Pastor Tom preaches and he goes past noon, he'll say, if you finish before I do, you can just leave. No, give you the grace to leave. And I've told those young women, if you're done, you can just get up and leave. We won't judge you. (laughs) If you've had enough, you know, being social, you can just leave. We won't judge you. So sometimes you have to make space. And this is something that I'm learning because I hit ministry burnout about a year and a half ago, and I thought I was headed to the Oaks. I mean, I hit, I hit rock bottom. It was bad. Um, and I learned that I had to, had to make some space for a while. There were some areas in my heart I needed to heal. I just laid a lot of ministry down. And slowly as I healed and got better, I was able to pick it back up again and get back into the battle. But, you know, just like you have recuperation time after surgery, I had to make some space. You might need a sabbatical, take a break, go on vacation, or just sit quietly on your porch. So the next slide is John 12, 36. Oh, wait, I got something out of order. All right, close your eyes because I'm going to go back and forth. Okay. No, I do have it right. <laughs> I had a hard time with my technology this go around. John 12, 36b. While you have the light, which is Jesus, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Now, I love that. This is the NASB and Hid in the Greek means to hide. You know, it's not a big word. So have you ever hidden someone from someone? <laughs> and I confess I have. I've, I've hidden 
Um, you know, sometimes you see one person coming and you go that way. I've hidden from neighbors before when I just, you know, I just can't talk right now. <laughs> um, sometimes my neighbors have asked me to come help, and, and one time I just said, no, I can't do that right now. Uh, you know, I just had to make some space. But I love that, that Jesus even hid himself from them. I mean, this is Jesus that healed everyone that came to him. But he knew his limits. And you know your limits. You know when you, okay, I really just give me 10 minutes alone. <laughs> Sometimes you need to do that. Mark one thirty-five. In the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up left the house, and went away to a secluded place, and he was praying there. And I am going to get to the point, so just hang with me. I'm going to get to the point, and it's going to be good. Secluded means lonely, desolate, uninhabited. Cross-reference would be Luke 6:12. It was at this time of night that he went off the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer with God. So sometimes you have to find that quiet place. And it's hard, especially if you have family at home, if you have a busy job, if you travel. And sometimes it's even in the car. I know Pastor Michael talks about praying in the car. And I love when I get to go on a road trip because I get to listen to a podcast and then I get to pray. And sometimes I have to tell Holy Spirit to stop while I'm driving because I'm just like getting into the worship and I'm starting to get carried away. And I'm like, Holy Spirit, we got to stop because I got I to gotta focus. So find that place where you can get alone and be with God because it's not just about being alone, but letting God refill you during that time. For me, one thing that I do, especially when I travel, is is I turn off. um, I don't look at email when I travel. I try to distance myself from my phone. I try to stay off social media. I try to give myself digital breaks. Because if you've got a phone and your ringer's on, you're always bombarded all day long and distracted and pulled away. So sometimes we even need to make space in that way. I usually keep my ringer off because I just can't handle all that ding, ding, ding all day long. So I give you permission to make space. Okay, Mark 14, 23. After he had sent the crowds away, he went, up on the mountain by himself to pray. And it was evening. When it was evening, he was there alone. And this word alone in the Greek, it's monos. I think it's like one, you know, (laughs) one. But what I love is that the root word is another word that I know, and it's um, meno. And it's it's part of that compound word that, that the word endurance and perseverance comes from. It means to stay in place, to abide. He got alone. So respect people when they need space. And don't be offended because it's not about you. It's not about you. Like sometimes young women will text me and they'll say, you know, I'd love to spend time with you. And, and I'll have to work it in my schedule because I know I've got to plan some breaks for ministry and get filled up. Otherwise, I'll be going and have nothing to give. And I've done that before. I've shown up for a mentoring appointment and said, I have nothing. (laughs) Well, I didn't tell them I had nothing to give. I would text people and say, pray for me. I have nothing to give. And we want to be filled up. We want to get it alone. So here's the point. Here's the point. Because it's not all about us. So why did Jesus, so I'm going to kind of pull this together. Why did Jesus withdraw, slip away, that was often, 
He hid himself from people. He went to secluded places, and he was alone. So just think for a minute about the task before Jesus. I mean, first of all, he's ministering to the crowds. He's arguing with these these Pharisees. He's got these 12 disciples that had needs of their own. He's got family. We're going to talk about family in a minute. And then he's got this task of laying down his life. So he needed to get alone with God to be strengthened. And for me, when I prepare to teach, the most important part isn't making the slides or getting the technology or making the handout or writing the lesson. It's when I prepare my heart. It's when I get alone with God and say, God, if you don't show up, I'm in trouble. I get alone and I confess my sins and Holy Spirit fill me and anoint me. And so that's the most important part. And for Jesus, he had to get alone with God for God to fill him up. Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. That is the point of what Jesus was doing is when he got alone when he was able to get to that quiet space, like when I'm in the mountains and I get my cup of coffee and I sit in that rocking chair, boom, I am with Jesus. I mean, it is just, and sometimes like before you know it, I'm on the sidewalk on my face weeping because I'm with Jesus. So when we pull away, we're able to be with the Lord so much more easy, more easily. There's nothing distracting me on my phone. I'm just not even looking. I'm with Jesus. Jeremiah 29, 13 through 14. Oh, there's a typo. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. James 4, 8. This is the point. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God. So we pull away at times because it's healthy and we need to be recharged and restored and refreshed. But we pull away from others, but we do that to draw near to God. We make space for God in our refrigerator, right? We make space for God. That's what withdrawal means, to make some space. So we have to make space with God. So we go to the mountain with God to gain strength for the battle in the valley. Because if you're in the valley all the time and battling, you're going to get worn out and you're going to become a casualty. So there are times we have to go to the mountain to be with God to face what we know is coming in the valley, sometimes to to face what we don't know. And there will be times God will pull you away, and you'll just be on just a, um, a sabbatical, a vacation, deep in his word. And then later, when the crisis comes, you know why. He was preparing you. On the handout, there's a, um, a quote. It was Jesus' rich life of quiet prayer and tender intimacy with Abba that was the source, the source of his love, wisdom, and power. His ministry was an overflow of his oneness with the Father. And we're going to see this more. um, The next two weeks are going to be Jesus in his own words. Those are those seven I am statements that he says in the book of John, how he described himself. And one of them is, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And that's John 15. And so our application from this, just, um, just kind of a summary of John 15, abide in Jesus as he abides in the Father. And you're going to bear fruit. But you have to stay on that charger. You have to stay connected because otherwise, after a while, if, if you're not abiding in Jesus as he abides in the Father, then you're just going to dry up. 
you're just going to dry up. You're going to wear yourself out. Is that encouraging to you? So it's up to you to decide if Jesus was an introvert, but clearly he made space. He took time away from people. He got alone, and he drew near to God, and that's what I want you to see. And I want you to be friendly to us introverts who have to do that sometimes. Excuse me. Have, have mercy with us. So next I want to look at humility. And if you, um, you can turn with me to John 13. You can read it on the handout. And so this is at the Last Supper. And I'm just going to read um, verse 1 and then verses 4 through 5. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He got up from supper, he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So the Wearsby Commentary says, The disciples must have been shocked when they saw their master rise from supper, lay aside his outer garments, wrap a towel around his waist, take a basin of water, and wash their feet. Jewish servants didn't wash their master's feet. A Gentile slave might have done that menial task. But yet Jesus did it. As a special mark of affection, a host or hostess might wash a guest's feet, but it wasn't standard operating procedure in most homes. So Jesus did something that was very out of the ordinary. So I first want to take, um, I first want to point out John 13, 1, where it says he loved them to the end. Because in the Greek, it means he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the uttermost. And if you were here for the Ephesians study, where we talked about how Jesus loved the church, we did a word study on that word agape love. And the definition that I pulled together after the word study and looking at other references is a good definition of love. And this is what we see Jesus do. Love means to continually value, esteem, and unselfishly serve. Jesus didn't have to serve them by washing their feet. It was a sacrifice. It was love. And I also love in John 13, 4b, the second half of the verse, it says he laid aside his garments. And that reminds me of a passage that I taught in Philippians, and this is another favorite one. I, I hound on it a lot. Philippians 2, 5, the second half, B through 8. It says, Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and he was made in the likeness of a man. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I remember when I did this word study on those scriptures where it says he emptied himself, in the Greek it means he laid aside 
his privileges. He was omnipotent. He was omniscient. He was in heaven. He was with the Father. He was in the bosom of the Father, we've learned. He was being worshipped. He was receiving glory. And that word grasped, it means like to seize. He didn't see equality with God as something to be seized. But he laid aside his privileges. And so when I see laid aside his garments, it reminds me, Jesus is laying aside his privileges to serve. In his final evening with his disciples, Jesus redefined leadership and greatness as he served them. So a couple, um, so here's what he says after he washes their feet. Oh, wait, I think I got ahead of myself. So this is a picture at the Jesus tent of um, Congressman David Rouser and it's Pastor Michael and Mike Hogan and Paula Millsaps serving him and washing his feet, and he wept. I mean, it's, it's moving when someone washes your feet. Okay, give me a little grace because I think I've lost a slide. Uh-huh. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. So I know this is on the handout. I can't seem to find my slide. But Jesus says in John 13, starting with verse 14, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, the Lord, if I washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Matthew 23, 11 says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. So application, oh, please be in the right place. All right, I'm sorry. I really did have problems with my slides. Okay, application. Love humbly serves those we lead. We serve those we lead, even when we're entitled to be served. Even when we're entitled to be honored, we serve. Now, I have a question. And I'm not judging. I'm just giving an example. Have you ever been to a church and seen that parking spot up front that says reserved for pastor? Okay. Have you ever seen one of those here? Do you know where the pastors at this church park on Sunday mornings? In the boonies. The pastors and the board were asked to park in the boonies. Why? To serve you to make room for you to park. That's what Jesus did. He deserved to be honored, but he laid aside any rights. He laid aside those privileges in order to serve and to love, and that's the example that he gave us. Even when we're, even at your job, you might be entitled to be honored, but we can lay that aside and serve others. No matter where you are, no matter how far you go up the ladder, you serve. No matter if you deserve to be honored, you serve. So this was a quote I found um, by G.K. Chesterton, who was an English writer. There's a great man who makes every man feel small, but the real great man is the man who makes every man feel great. And imagine how those disciples felt when they knew that the God of the universe was serving them. And I often feel that way, and, and I'm so thankful that all of you come, but Somehow when Parthena Skipper Green shows up, I just feel so honored 
because I know she drives 100 miles a day as a chaplain, you know, as a chaplain for hospice. And so when she makes the effort and shows up, I just feel so honored. And I know all of y'all are working hard and you're busy, but certain people, like when Tish drives, Tish, when uh, Tish and Milton Parker, when Tish drives an hour from Whiteville to come to my house to have dinner with some friends, I feel honored. And so we can honor others in the same way. We can make other people feel great. The real great man is the one who makes every man feel great. We can honor everyone. So let's talk about Jesus the rejected. So you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that I'm 4'10". The last time I got measured, they added a half. I really kind of liked that. They said, you're 4'10 and a half. But being 4'10", I've never been athletic. I always said I was vertically challenged. I did not play basketball. When I did play sports, I played right field, which in our softball league was where you put the worst players. Okay? So here's me in the sixth grade. I'm that short one right in the center. Down front, in the center, just like every year of elementary school, I was front and center. One year I even held my dress out, (laughs) but I was front and center. Now, in the sixth grade, I loved sixth grade. I loved my teacher, but I dreaded when she said it's time for a recess because that meant we went outside to play kickball. And what I dreaded was when they chose teams. Now, I might have been the first pick for like a math bowl, but I was the last pick for kickball. So they would choose, you know, pick, pick size. One would choose and one would choose, and then we'd get down like to the last three, and a lot of times I would be last. And how did that make me feel? Well, it made me feel insignificant, and like I wasn't good enough, that I didn't matter. Every, like the most athletic people, they were chosen first. They mattered, but I didn't really matter. And so that's something that I grew up with. And just recently, God put his finger on it (laughs) because I felt like I didn't matter. And he brought me back to that. And he said, you matter. But Jesus understands what it feels like to be rejected. And if you are human, you've been rejected before, whether by your neighbors, your family, your friends, a spouse, even our children can reject us. It's just part of life as long as we're in a fallen world where people sin. We're going to feel at times rejected. But Jesus understands. John 1, 5, and then 10 through 11, and we covered this in the first week. The light, which is Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Another cross-reference, Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, because its deeds are evil. And that's why they didn't like Jesus, because he pointed out their sin. And who wants that? Who wants that? But Jesus was rejected. And then you see as you study John and you move up to chapter 6, which is the defining point in Jesus' public ministry, He says something that was really hard for them, and Pastor Tom mentioned this when he was teaching. The turning point is when Jesus is in the bread of life discourse, 
and he moves into about verse 53, and he says this about four or five different ways. But he says, Truly, truly, unless I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And they were like, this is a difficult statement. Who can understand it? And that was the turning point when he started to face a lot of opposition. And when I studied in my little pink Bible, every time I saw opposition from the Jews, I underlined it. And you could just see the pattern all the way up to the Last Supper. Lots of opposition. But even his own, even the ones who were close to him. Remember, there was the 72. There was the 12, but there was the 72. John 6, 66, as a result of this, this statement, eat my flesh, drink my blood, many of his disciples withdrew, and they were not walking with him anymore. Jesus knows rejection. It hurts. It hurts, right? It hurts. So let's look at another way that he was rejected. He was stereotyped. It's probably been maybe um, last fall. There was a security person who worked here at the church, and I'm a talker. And so, of course, I was talking to him, and I asked him where he was from, and he said, New York City. And I said, I don't hear any accent. And he said, well, I try to cover it up. And I was like, why? And he said, well, here in the South, you're stereotyped. People think of you a certain way when they hear your accent. So he had trained himself to speak differently so that people would not reject him. He had been stereotyped. And the same thing, you know, we do this. My daughter says the more I'm with my family that lives in the country, the more I sound country. But we change our accents. We, we hide where we're really from. We may not say what kind of work we do or what kind of work we did do. We may not say the part of town we live in. Because we can be stereotyped. Now, what about Jesus? I love this. This is at the very beginning when Jesus is calling his disciples. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Jesus knows what it's like to be stereotyped. That was based on where he was from. And you may have experienced the same thing too, being stereotyped based on your accent. Just like, I mean, I'll just say Southerners think New Yorkers are rude, and sometimes New Yorkers think Southerners are stupid. You know, when you hear that accent and where are you from? I'm from Wattville. You know, you can be stereotyped. Well, you're uneducated and you're stupid. So we do that to each other. (laughs) Jesus knows what it's like. So if you've been hurt, Jesus knows, and let's not do that. Let's love everybody. But sometimes, based on where we grew up, people stereotype us. Jesus knows. So let's talk about family. I'm going to lighten it up just a little bit. Families are like fudge, mostly sweet with lots of nuts. Amen? I like this one. My family is temperamental, half temper, half mental. And this one was cute, too. Our family is just one tent away from a full-blown circus. So we know what it's like to have family, and it was no different with Jesus. 
John 7, 5, which is on your handout, it says, For not even his brothers were believing in him. In Mark 6, 4, it says, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his home. So just think about how would your family feel if you announced, you know, your flesh and blood, <laughs> I'm the son of God. How would they feel? Sometimes we announce similarly shocking things. We say, I'm going to quit my job and become a missionary. Or we say, God told me to move across the country and start a church. Or I'm going to go back to school. Sometimes we share these dreams just like Joseph and the dreams that he had and what God had shown him. We get rejected by our family because they don't see it. They don't understand. And especially if you're a believer and your family's not a believer, they don't understand. If you're charismatic and your family's not charismatic, they might not understand. They might not understand your choices. And Jesus knows the doubt of family, the skepticism. They might try to dissuade you. They won't immediately get behind your vision. Now, sometimes they will. But I want you to know that Jesus also knows, even though his family didn't believe him, he knew what God had called him to do. And he knew that even alone, God would give him the supernatural power and grace through the Holy Spirit to equip him to minister and then to lay down his life. So even when no one supports you, like Ephesians 3, Paul over and over says, I'm called according to the grace. According to the grace. It's grace that empowers you to do what God calls you to do, even when no one is believing in you, even when they think you're crazy. When you say, God's, like, God told me to go back to school, I start seminary in October. I actually think that's a little crazy. But, you know, I'm obeying. It's not my idea. It was God's. And he showed me billboards driving through Columbia. And then he gave me a a magazine in my mailbox when I got home that said best graduate schools. Okay, my family might think I'm crazy, but God will equip me. So I just want to encourage you because I think we can relate. Jesus was misunderstood. John 8, 19. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you, neither, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And I'm going to skip that next verse for the sake of time. So this is my Hannah when she was four years old. And I remember one day I drove Gregory to preschool, drove home with her. We're sitting in the driveway, and, and I'm a little outgoing, and Hannah was more reserved. She was, and I wanted her to be confident, strong, like me. And I said, Hannah, you're not shy. And she sat in that back seat and she said, but mom, I am shy. You just don't understand me. And I thought, Jesus, if my four-year-old says I don't understand her, what's it going to be like when she's 13? <laughs> I didn't understand her. And it was true to this day. She's... She's very comfortable with close friends, but if you're a stranger, she's more reticent, even though she's a strong, confident, capable woman. We can all relate to that four-year-old girl when we say, they just, don't, they, they just don't understand me. 
We all have quirks. We all have parts of our personalities that other people can't relate to. You might not be able to relate to my desire for a jammy day, but I love a jammy day just to stay at home and not go anywhere. We might not understand each other's boundaries or the way people dress or how they worship. We might not understand, but Jesus knows what this was like. And he knows how much it hurt to not be understood. So I just want to encourage you that when other people don't understand you, there is a God who created you the way he made you. And he understands. And he knows the pain of being misunderstood. And he can heal that in you if that's something that you're struggling with. So let's talk for a minute about Jesus went through a lot, didn't he? (laughs) He went through a lot. Let's talk about hurtful words and false accusations. So here's my example. This is the logo that you'll find on my blog, which three years ago in the month of July, God gave me a name at a conference in Charlotte, and it was Celebrating Weakness. And I fought that for months because I don't like it. After three years, I still don't like it. But to celebrate means to publicly announce, that's a definition, weakness. God has called me to share my my struggles so that other women know they're not alone. So I get this email back in February from a complete stranger. And he says, hi, Lisa, celebrating weakness, question, question, question mark. I can tell that you don't quite get how and why God does what he does. Don't feel bad about it. It's really difficult to understand God. By the way, I have a master's degree. I've taught Bible for 40 years. I'm an ordained deacon. Now, that upset me just a little bit. (laughs) And uh, I thought of a lot of responses for him, but I just, in the end, I just laid it down. It wasn't worth it. But those were hurtful words to me for him, for a complete stranger to say, you know, you don't understand God. You don't understand God. It's okay. Don't worry. And then he says, if you have any questions, email me. I'll help you out. Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, You know, have you ever been called a name? Probably as a child. Bullies call us names based on our appearance, like fatso, four eyes. I was shrimp, (laughs) freckles, dummy, idiot, nerd. Well, Jesus was called names too. He was called demon-possessed. That's John 4, 8. Do we not say rightly that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? He was called a Samaritan, which was a racial slur because the Jews didn't have dealings with Samaritans. They were half-breed, pagan, poor people. We're going to talk a little more about the Samaritan woman probably next week. John 10, 20. He has a demon and he's insane. John 10, 33 It says, for good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy. So they called him demon-possessed, a blasphemer, insane, and this racial slur, a Samaritan. And people still call each other names. People are falsely accused. You can just read the headlines. You can go on social media. And even among our own family and friends, we can be falsely accused and have hurtful words said about us. And I want you to know Jesus understands. 
He knows that pain. Insane, demon-possessed, a blasphemer, a Samaritan. He knows the pain of being falsely accused. I mean, he was there to give his life, and they're calling him these things. He, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He loved them, and this is what they called him. So Jesus was persecuted. And I told you that transition in his ministry where he says, eat, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and then the opposition starts. The definition of persecution is hostility and ill treatment especially because of race or political or religious beliefs. And I couldn't think of a time when I've been persecuted for my faith, thank God, as an American. But there was a time when I was persecuted for my education and my position. So this is me when I worked for, it was Carolina Power and Light. It's now, it became Duke Energy, or it's now Duke Energy. So this is me. I was a degreed nuclear engineer, but I worked in operations, which meant I operated the plant. So I've got on my hard hat, and I've got on my steel-toed boots, and I've got on my belt that I carried my mag light on and my radio, and I had my safety glasses, and, it, you know, I was a blue-collar worker. And I ran the big 6.9-megawatt diesel generators. I mean, I did the work, and it was hard. But I was different than those other 100 people in the operations group because I was a management trainee and I had a degree. And so I had to get their help because you had on-the-job training, OJT. You know, you had this qual card. You had to qualify certain watch stations that you had to train how to do it, and then you had to demonstrate that you were proficient. And some of these people didn't want to train me. They <laughs> berated me. The only good thing was there were three women in operations out of about 100 men, so I had the bathroom to myself alone to cry in every day. Really. You know, three in the morning, I'm all alone in the bathroom. I could cry in private. And it was so bad that Brian, who was in graduate school, he almost quit graduate school so I could quit my job because I was somewhat supporting us. We were married. It was that bad. I learned a lot of Bible verses. And we're persecuted for a variety of reasons. And Jesus knows. John 5, 6, um, 5, 16, and 18. For this, this is one reason. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things. He was healing people on the Sabbath. They were seeking all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. And this was interesting, the word persecute, when you look it up in that verse in the Greek, it means to make, to run, or flee. To make, to run, or flee, to put to flight, to drive away. And so it made me think, how many of you, whether in your job or in your ministry or your family, or through your friends, your neighbors, are you being persecuted? Are people trying to drive you away from what God's called you to do? That's what persecution does. It makes you run away from what God has called you to do. John 10, 31, the Jews picked up, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So the application is, is don't quit your calling. Don't quit. Don't quit. Even when they're trying to stone you. Be wise. You know, Jesus was careful in where he went. But don't quit even when they're persecuting you.
So let's talk about betrayal. I think we all know what it's like to be betrayed. David says in Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That hurts. That really, really hurts. And Jesus was betrayed. And I'm going to jump down and just talk for a minute about Peter. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but the references are there in your handout. But we know Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny three times that you know me before the rooster crows. And it happened. And don't you know, I think Jesus probably heard that rooster crow. You know, he was in the court of Pilate. I think Jesus probably even heard that rooster crow. And how do you think Jesus felt knowing that Peter, one of the three, the inner three, I think it hurt him. I think it hurt him. And we know that later Jesus did restore Peter after his resurrection. Jesus knew Peter would betray him, but at that last supper, he washed his feet anyway. He did it anyway. Love passionately serves those in the body of Christ, even when they hurt and disappoint us. Boy, I think I, think I could tell some stories. I'm sure you can tell some stories, Pastor Tom. We could all tell some stories because people, we're human. Pinch yourself. If you're human, you're going to hurt somebody. Somebody's going to hurt you. It happens. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes mistakenly, but we still serve. So who's betrayed you that you can serve? And then Judas. John 13, 21. Jesus became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And this was at the Last Supper. And Jesus knew how it was all going to play out. He knew that this disciple, this beloved student that he had been toward, poured his life into, taught the ways of God, he knew this one would betray him. And he knew the way it would end up too. I mean, Judas hung himself. And I think that broke Jesus' heart. Not only the betrayal, but just the love and compassion, because Jesus loved everyone, even Judas. Love intentionally serves those who hate us, even when their behavior doesn't change. Boy, that's hard stuff. That's hard stuff. That's hard stuff. Cross-reference, Luke 6, uh, 27 through 28. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So as you look at your life, is there someone who's betrayed you that you could show some love to? That's hard stuff. It just it takes the grace of Holy Spirit. So I am wrapping up. We're getting closer to Jesus' death on the cross and the story. So this is me in 1994. Brian and I were engaged. I met George Washington University. I spent a, I had a summer internship in Washington, D.C. And what you can't see is there are 
iron bars on my window. I was in the good part of Washington, D.C., right there at Foggy Bottom Metro Station on the campus of a university, but there were iron bars on my window. I was on the ground floor. And when I saw my daddy leave me, I, like, held on to the bars, and I was like, Daddy? Because I was, what, 22 years old? I was just a baby. I mean, I'm holding my stuffed animals in the picture. I felt abandoned. (laughs) I felt abandoned. And there are times we feel like God abandons us, leaves us on our own to fend for ourselves. There's an email that I got from someone a few months ago. She says, I feel like my prayers have been for nothing, that God doesn't hear me or care. I'm angry, I'm hurt, and I'm really struggling to even believe. I feel crushed, betrayed, and forgotten by the one who claims to love and watch over me. That's exactly how I feel, alone and forgotten. Even though I've sought a close and intimate relationship with him, there's a deafening silence. Jesus knows what it's like to feel abandoned. He had prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But then he had a will, and he laid it down, and he said, Not my will, but yours be done. And when he was on the cross in Matthew 27, 46, it says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lamak sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That word means to abandon. Jesus on the cross felt abandoned. So if you've ever been abandoned, if a parent or spouse died, if a a spouse left you, if the children left home and never came back, if a best friend moved away, if you had to move away from everyone you know, if a friend dumped you, a boyfriend cheated on you, if you felt abandoned by God, Jesus knows what it's like. He knows what it's like. There was a blog post by Madeline Ferrante. She's, um, oh, help me in my words, leave me. Christy Ferrante and Vince, Vince's daughter. And she's a young lady. But her cousin uh, Ryan died of brain cancer, I guess about a year and a half ago, year and a half ago. And she wrote a blog post, and she just describes how she was feeling. She says, I can see the casket. I can see the loss. She could feel the distance. She felt confusion, frustration, disappointment. And she says, Lord, do I believe you've never failed me? And she says, in that moment, the Lord whispered to me, I have never failed you, Madeline. Rather, you fail to see things from my perspective. She says, God sees into eternity. We see into the present. God sees the whole picture. We see one pixel of the whole picture. God's perspective is too glorious and too holy for our human eyes or minds. And I loved that quote. Let's see. I don't think I have it. There it is. God does not fail us, but we fail to see God's perspective. So even when we feel like God's abandoned us, and we'll feel, we'll feel it, 
sometimes we just don't see the big picture and what he's working for good behind our scenes. She says that um, God was going to use my greatest disappointments for his greatest appointments. I loved that. So in conclusion, I want y'all to know that two weeks, I want you to note that two weeks in a row I'm going to let you out early. (laughs) I love it. Because this is a lot of content. Thank you for your grace and sticking with me. This is how I ended last week. Why does it matter that we go through all of these things to say Jesus understands false accusation and being understood and family and being stereotyped? Why does it all matter? Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus knows how to pray for you. His, I say his full-time job is sitting at the right hand of God praying for you. He's experienced all of these things that we experience, yet without sin, but he knows how to pray for us. So Jesus, I thank you that you chose to become human. You laid aside your privileges to become human. You humbled yourself. You served and loved even those who would betray you. I thank you that you can give us the grace in these times where we're rejected and alone and feel abandoned and we're hurt. Jesus, I pray that you would comfort us when we're grieving, that you would help us when we're angry. Jesus, you know how all of these feelings and emotions and situations feel, and you can have compassion on us. So we just thank you that you are the word that became flesh. I thank you for that. I thank you for this time, and I pray that each one would go home tonight encouraged to know that you understand them, and that we would also follow those examples that you give us in your word of how you responded to people and how they treated you. We thank you for our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lisa. It's good. How many of you, when you when she was going through the different points of Jesus' experience, you could say, I can relate to that one. I was doing that. I was like, whoa, yeah, I remember that one. One of the powerful things of studying the word like this is it captures so much of a particular um, emotion that Jesus went through that brings that human side of him, fully God, fully man. And that's why he, he's... He gets it. That's why he's tempted in all ways. So, I don't know. It just really encourages me. Uh, the last two weeks have been really, really awesome. Well, let's stand. I want to invite you. Uh, Sunday morning, Jack Taylor will be here. I'm picking him up Friday night. And uh, so, it's, I know it's holiday weekend. It's going to be awesome. But he'll be here uh, Sunday morning. And we're just going to, anyway, you'll just enjoy him. If you've never heard Jack and Frida Taylor, just come. And they'll, uh, they've had so much wisdom to impart to us. Lord, we thank you for tonight. I ask your covering and your protection. Lord, let the, the word become flesh in us and dwell here among us so that when we relate to others and how they feel, when we give each other grace on areas when we can go, we can't go this place now, uh, we'll have that grace in the house. So I thank you, Lord, that uh, I like that part about families. Lots of sweetness, but a little nutty. Yeah, I think that describes a lot of our house here. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. That was good, Lisa. Thank you.